Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise scientist, uh, nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Okay, this is Phil Stevens, strength coach, run a strength guild, uh, strength guild weightlifting, strength guild powerlifting, uh, a bunch of other stuff. So we got the Strength Fest coming next weekend. So Always busy here. Nice. <clears throat> this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance, creator of the Flex Diet, and faculty member of the Kerrig Institute in Rocky Mountain, and now Southern Georgia University. I'm teaching a prep class for the CSCS exam in exercise phys. Cool. Yeah. So yes, Monday, <laughs> right? Wow. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> so you're always up on the science. What's happening in the science world? Strength and muscle sport news. Yeah, I've got one study here that's on the effects of pre-exercise carbohydrate availability on fat oxidation and energy expenditure after a high-intensity exercise. It's kind of a mouthful, but relatively new. Uh, 2018 here, and I haven't actually confessed to going through it in excruciatingly detail, but what's been interesting is there's more research coming out on if you do high-intensity exercise, uh, kind of what I call macro mismatching. So normally we would want to match the macros, right? So if you're burning a lot of carbohydrate, taking in carbohydrate, it's going to help with performance. But we know if you restrict carbohydrate, and do an exercise that uses a lot of carbohydrate, right? You're going to burn down a bunch of your muscle glycogen stores. And we see some very interesting adaptations on the molecular side. Not really sure how they carry over to performance. The data on that's pretty split. Um, but their hypothesis was here that if they reduce pre-exercise carbohydrate availability, does that potentiate fat oxidation after exhaustive high-intensity exercise bout? And so I kind of went about and did that, and there's different ways you can deplete carbohydrates beforehand. So they used a low-carb diet compared to a high-carb diet, and they ran them with a time to exhaustion, uh, which is kind of an older-school way of doing it, but there's a lot of literature to support that too. And in short, what they found was that a total energy expenditure was similar between the low and high carbohydrate availability, um, they found a couple other interesting things, and their conclusion was suggests that a single bout of high-intensity exercise performed under low carbohydrate availability uh, did increase post-exercise fat oxidation, uh, even with a shorter duration. But both exercise energy expenditure was not really different between them. And if you look at how much the fat oxidation was potentiated, it's still numbers-wise pretty damn small. Um, but anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting that we're seeing more and more literature along that lines and, you know, may give lifters some ideas to do what I call more of a distress session once in a while to maybe get some positive adaptations from that. Right. So what, one of my first questions was practical application there, you know, like yeah. how, how do you use it with your clients? 
specifically, yeah, I mean, other than what you just said. You part, know. Like, if you just go by this study, if you look at the amount different between them, it's pretty minor, right? It's not a lot. But again, this is from one study doing one session. So the framework that I have set up for it, I did a presentation in Costa Rica and a couple other places on it is, in short, I think, like a U-stress model. So when you have like an athlete that's in season, you know, providing carbohydrates around training, higher amounts in their diet, get performance as high as you can, recover as fast as you can between one session and the next, probably going to be a good idea. Um, in the off-season, if you want to play around with a distress model, so more stress, um, so you're actually purposely macro mismatching them, um, trying to get those little bit of adaptations, and then you're kind of hoping for that super compensation once you go back to providing carbohydrates again. And, you know, some studies said beneficial. You know, a couple other performance studies said mm, maybe not. The nice part is if you do it in the off-season, at worst, it's only going to probably cost you a couple weeks of your training, and you don't have to necessarily perform right away then, so your cost is going to be relatively low or mitigated. And like most things, we'll probably find that some athletes respond really well to it, and some probably don't. But it's definitely a definitely more advanced uh, technique, and not where people would want to start. Yeah, you know, one of my takeaways from that is that nutrition causes adaptations. We're so used to training, you know, inducing certain adaptations and whatnot. Um, in, in fact, like in the classroom, I'm often talking about that, like. You know, you lift heavier weights, you get bigger muscles. If you lift in a different way, you might get more hypertrophy or more strength. You're after adaptation, right? Uh, gains. Uh, mm-hmm. So, nutrition creates different stimuli, different stressors, and can cause adaptations too. And I think sometimes we forget that. You know, the whole idea of gyms all over the country is about, you know, you go to the gym to get an adaptation, to change and grow in a certain direction, you know, so... Yeah, and that's the other point, too, my last point, is that if we would go to the gym and do one session of heavy squats and then measure our max strength, we'd be like, well, of course, it's not going to be that much better, right? But we know if we do it day in and day out over time, right. it'll get better. Yeah, I think we're starting to get there with a lot of the interaction type stuff. So, again, this is looking at kind of a one-off type thing. If we do this intervention once, what do we see? Oh, we did see something. Yeah, magnitude's not that big. But again, we've only done it really a couple times. So just like strength training, we wouldn't expect to see these massive adaptations after just one exposure either. Yeah. It's always like the acute thing is cool. Uh, I think Darren Willoughby was talking about this a little bit, about, um, you know, what's a time course? Like Because for all yeah. you know, your body just auto-regulates and you lose any kind of training benefit after just a few sessions. You know what I mean? You don't it, – it's hard to kind of guess until you go do that training or feeding study, and I hate those. <laughs> oh, they're horrible in, to do. <laughs> in free-living people? Oh, God. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to apologize again this week and probably every week, you guys, listeners, just because I'm, I'm still waiting for uh, – I'm mid-repair on this front tooth <laughs> that I'm missing. Talking to you through a mic with no front tooth here. Um. Anyway, a couple of uh, I have one a little a bit of news and then some mail type things. Actually, two little tidbits of news. Uh, the first one, this is by Carmen Leach. Use of probiotics linked to severe bloating and brain fog. Thought this was interesting. This is from um, 
labroots.com. It talks about um, there's a wide variety of probiotic supplements which aim to boost bacteria in the gut. Uh, as a sales pitch, they are often suggested to have good effects on your health, but new research suggests that these supplements should be used with caution. Uh, in a group of 30 people, uh, the 22 that were having difficulty concentrating and reporting confusion, as well as gas and bloating, were also taking probiotics. So this is one of the first times I've seen something really deleterious like this, right, with the brain fog and, and stuff like that. But bear with me. So this is researchers were looking at a correlation between um, different populations of bacteria uh, and then what they do to your health. Uh, lactobacillus bacteria were, in this study, fermenting uh, the sugars that people ate in the intestine and generating lots of D-lactate, said Dr. Satish Rao, R-A-O, Director of Neurogastroenterology and Motility uh, and Digestive Health Clinical Research Center at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. Well, that's a long title. Um, anyway... D-lactic acid, quote-unquote, disrupts brain cell function and can cause trouble with perception of time and cognition. In some of these individuals, they could not work, work anymore because of their brain fog, which could last for hours. They were found to have two to three times the normal levels of D-lactic acid in their blood. Hmm. Uh, a, a quote later on, probiotics should be treated as a drug, not as a food supplement. Rao noted. Well, that's controversial, but okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> probiotics can still help people with gastroenteritis that wipes out their gut microbes, he says later. And then he also notes that healthy foods like kimchi, yogurt, sauerkraut, and dark chocolate don't c contain much bacteria and they should be safe for most people. I, I'm not really sure what to make of this one, um, except that it's a very complex issue, you know, because you talk about people who are they're taking probiotics specifically to enhance the gut-brain connection, right? Because we know there's crosstalk now over the last couple of years. That's pretty clear. And whether it's from acetate or, in this case, D-lactate, or, you know, there are different compounds that end, end up rising in your blood because of the bacteria that you house in your large intestines. Um, Mike, what are your thoughts on this? I don't know. It sounds... Yeah, I don't know that they should be regulated as a drug, but outside of that, I mean, I've had clients, and we've had Dr. Michael Ruscio on here before, too, and that, you know, sometimes probiotics just make them way worse, and, you know, a lot of times they can help, but depends on what probiotic, what strain, how much, you know, what's going on with the person's, you know, gut and the different types, and, yeah, I mean, and unless they've got really big gut issues, obviously, I'm going to refer them out, but... I just kind of do the super simple advice of, you know, let's just start low and take it and see how you feel. And if you get super bloated and gassy and feel horrible, then we're going to cut back or try a different one. I mean, it's, yeah, I think the, ooh, everyone needs a probiotic and just take these massive amounts and you'll feel better is just way too simplistic. Exactly. As if it's one thing, you know, like, yeah, exactly. like, like, <laughs> t like hot tea is one thing or coffee is one thing. Oh, Lord. It's not one thing, and probiotics are certainly not all one product, you know. Yeah. Different strains and, and doses, and this does um, acknowledge it was a small sample size, but gosh, you know, over 70% of 
um, having problems, you know, uh, with concentrating and reporting confusion. Uh, I struggle with that a bit myself. You know, a lot of that just mental fogginess. And actually, interestingly, I just got off a course of amoxicillin because of my, you know, mouth work here. Oh, yeah. Uh, And I haven't been foggy. (laughs) I think, you know, if there was a... I don't want to read too much into that, right? Uh, It could be that I slept better or who knows what, but um, it does make me wonder. Did I just kill some of the bacteria that were generating compounds that were making me very sleepy or foggy? I don't know. Yeah. I've talked to Rushi about that, too, and I'm like, if if you're working with your physician, if you ever have your gut that's just completely, utterly messed up, is like kind of a last-ditch effort, possibly an antibiotic to wipe out a bunch of the quote-unquote good and bad little yeah. critters in there and then try to repopulate it. But yeah, like a nuke. You populating know? part is the hard part because probiotics tend to just run on top of the gut. They don't really tend to exactly. repopulate right. So that's the bugger where you're kind of stuck there unless you do a fecal transplant. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I would think antibiotic or fecal transplant, that's like nuke from orbit. You know, like exactly. wipe out everybody <laughs> Let God sort them out and then just start again kind of thing. Yeah. Um, actually, it does beg the question. I was thinking about this just yesterday. I'm just going to try to eat a variety of fruits and vegetables right now uh, because I want to repopulate my gut. Like, I don't know how badly. I sincerely doubt I wiped my my gut down to zero, you know, with a, a yeah. five-day course of amoxicillin. Because we all know antibiotics, they kill certain bacteria more than others and this and that. And, um but yeah, I mean, practical tip might be that if you do do a course of antibiotics, just try to have a, a really healthy fruit and veg rich diet, you know, following that so you can strengthen the populations that you want. It might be an opportunity, I guess, right? So anyway, yeah, that was interesting stuff and controversial too. I mean, I do not like the idea that every supplement, you know, uh, should become a drug. It's easy for a, um, a medical doctor to say something like that, I think, right, because... We have to go to them. I'm not. I'm not real keen on paying 150 dollars to get prescribed my my fish oils. You know, yeah. like let's not go there. Um, yeah. And if if there was that big of a risk with something, we would know about it, right? If fish oil is like killing tons of people, we would know about it by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and anyway, interesting because earlier stuff we had talked about on the show many months ago about acetate being one of the main co- compounds, the chemicals that. Uh, are produced by gut bacteria and influence your brain. And here, D-lactic acid now enters the list. So, hmm, maybe a mechanism there. Okay, um, second, um, thank you everybody who responded to the coffee project, the coffee tasting outsourcing thing that we were doing. Um, no more, please. Uh, we have over two dozen people and. I don't want to – the bottleneck is the manufacturer. We're hand-making these prototypes, and you'll understand more uh, when this moves along. First things first is going to be early fall. We're going to send out an NDA to everybody, a non-disclosure agreement, because you're going to be working with something that's sort of a – you know, it's patent pending, and, you know, we just got to have to, you know, make the lawyers happy, essentially. Um, and then we'll get going with some of this stuff. I think it's, it'll be fun. It'll be educational, but um, – if you haven't heard back from me, we're full. We just can't. T- it would be irresponsible. You know, I hear of people doing Kickstarters, for example, and they get too much interest. 
and then they can't supply the product of interest. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to make that mistake, right? So um, we got over two dozen people. That's enough. So thank you guys uh, for that a lot because it's going to matter and it's going to be fun. I mean, it's it, you want to volunteer for something like this? The study part of it is what I'm doing in the lab with some chemist uh, friends of mine looking at the antioxidants, the different things in coffee. Um, your part is really just taste testing. And that's important for me to differentiate because taste testing is waived from human subjects review. So I'm not really going to have you do much more than use your background. I mean, your population, you're in tune with your bodies and that sort of thing. And then just um, tell me what you taste. And not just good or bad, but there's some very complex ways that the Specialty Coffee Association and other groups can actually map uh, the taste of coffee, and you'll learn how to do this. So some of you out there, I mean, gosh, of the people that responded, multiple engineers thought that was interesting. They might help with the prototype side of things maybe. Um, coffee industry people, they were talking about the difference of cupping versus this. what we're doing here. What we're doing is much more on the science side. They're trying to standardize how you do taste testing because cupping has sort of a value judgment that is associated with it, and that's not really what this is. But it's you kind of map how you do it. So it'll be fun. Uh, please be patient. Like I said, the first thing you will receive in the mail is um, a little non-disclosure agreement. Just so you can sign that, send it back, and we'll get started. Anyway, um, next. I would like to address and maybe, maybe qualify something from last week. Uh, there was um, an email about that narrow window of fasting. And basically when we hung up, and when I was doing editing, I was thinking about this. But it's important to note, if you remember, there was an individual who was consuming like all of his calories in a six-hour window. Uh, and I, I think we addressed this a little, but target date diets are very common in bodybuilding, right? Very common. So I'm not too worried about that kind of stuff. I mean, including potentially sitting at the family table and just not eating what everybody else is eating or even not eating at all. We've all done that. So I... As I was editing that, I was thinking, I hope I wasn't too negative about that, right? We've all done that in a target date, temporary kind of way. Um, it's only in really long time frames when people buy into that for multiple years. And I think we all know almost nobody does that, right? They don't make a result, um, a, a, an eating habit change that dramatic that sticks for multiple years. So... Anyway, I just wanted to toss that out. That's always a consideration is what is your time frame because the way all of us deal with target date diets for someone is going to be very different from dieting for the long haul, right? So um, the carnivore diet would fit in there as well. We talked about the carnivore diet. We talked about intermittent fasting. All these things, I'm not going to worry about anybody really that much if they do that traditional physique, bodybuilder, target date kind of thing. It's really just the real long-term stuff. So, Anyway, just I wanted to qualify that because I was thinking about that when I was editing. Um, next, from Ronnie. Uh, and Mike, you had mentioned something in the news recently about this, but he sent me a YouTube um, video, and he was asking what we thought of bicarbonate as a supplement. Um, now, mm. I did not listen all the way through, through this video, but the idea was that you know this is something that has – a certain effect and with all the other stuff on the market we sometimes overlook what's almost a, a well is a common kitchen product um obviously buffering 
muscle acidity. I even seen um, some stuff indirectly as far as uh, having anti-catabolic effects, right, or preventing protein breakdown a little bit. Um, If you can trick your body, and I don't know, local versus systemic, you can't trick your body very much. I mean, blood pH is between 7.35 and 7.45, I think. It's very, very narrow because your kidneys and your breathing rate regulate that, right? So you're not going to have huge differences in this. Some people talk about eating more alkaline foods. Um, but, Mike, can you offer your thoughts on bicarb as a supplement? Yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating. Um, so it's one I tried years ago. So the theory is that there's good data to support this, that so if you do high-intensity exercise, everyone's associated that with the burning sensation, and that's the spinning off of lactate plus hydrogen ions. I hate the word lactic acid, but that's what's commonly thrown around. Yeah. Um, and you actually have a change in the pH, which causes burning and then screws up the actinomycin cross-bridging and a bunch of the enzymes and a bunch of other stuff. So people are familiar with uh, beta-alanine, which I first heard from our buddy Dave Barr years ago. Yes. So beta-alanine mm-hmm. binds with histamine to form intramuscular carnosine. So carnosine is a good intramuscular buffer of soaking up some of the hydrogen ions. But those are going to spill over into the bloodstream. And sodium bicarbonate is more of a extracellular buffer of hydrogen ion, right? So people are baking soda. The downside is if you take it orally, the dose you need to see an ergogenic or performance-boosting effect is extremely close to the dose where you crap your pants. Yep. So yep. <laughs> from a practical standpoint, that makes it really hard. Um, you're getting down to try to take super small doses spread out over the course of a day, and it just becomes a big pain in the butt. Um, years ago, I tried it with a pretty high-level Danish um, a kayaker, and yeah, it was... Okay, so now am I doing undue mental stress on him being stuck in a, a boat where he's got a paddle, thinking that, yeah, he may leave a mess in his boat versus doing a little bit better, and tried with a few other people, and just didn't really, in practice, I think, work out all that well. Um, interestingly enough, when I was at the NSCA national meeting, there was a company there, I want to say it was, uh, I'll think of the name, but they had a transdermal sodium bicarbonate. When the guy described it to me, I was like, holy crap, that's an amazing idea, right? So we take sodium bicarbonate and we push it through the skin, right? So we're bypassing any type of GI distress and things of that nature. So there's three studies he sent me, which are actually on my docket to read today, that shows a pretty good increase in performance. I haven't read them all the way through, but you know, one of them was in Med Science Sport, so a pretty high-level journal. And according to him, the FDA is okay with it because they've kind of turned their nose up at a lot of transdermal stuff in the past, especially hormonal stuff. But it could be just the hormonal stuff in general it didn't go so well. Um, yeah, so that maybe something to try out. I got a couple of samples. It's kind of a, a messy liquid. You just put on your legs or arms or wherever, leave it sit for about a half hour and you can then kind of wipe it off. So yeah, it doesn't disappear or anything. It kind of stays there for a while because you use a fat base to try to get it through the skin. But if it works, that might be a way to, to get levels high enough. 
And then back on our discussion we had earlier, does that mean all those acute performance, little slight benefits we get, does that add up to long-term benefits over time? Yeah. Not sure. I want to say my buddy Andy Gelpin, I think, just had a recent article he put something else out on that I haven't read yet that, if I remember correctly, said acute performance went up a little bit, but long-term didn't seem to matter all that much. Mm. Okay. Yeah, again, with the acute versus chronic kind of, you know, right. thing. Right. And you could argue the other way, too, right? We've seen studies with creatine that, you know, acutely we know it helps with strength, and then there's some data to show chronically it's still beneficial. So you can never really predict which way they're they're going to kind of go on those studies. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget sometimes. They look at creatine as an energy source, and they'd be right in, in doing so. But it's also a muscle acidity buffer, you know, um, on some level and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned Dave. Um, Dave Barr and I, we had discussed many years ago doing like a self-guinea pig kind of project with antacids and actually – Taking a yeah. serious look at you know taking antacids regularly in fairly high doses, just sort of like a tums kind of thing, uh, and then checking body comp like after eight weeks, you know something like that, twelve weeks. Um, it's just a little bit too much investment and a little too weird just to kind of play with this idea: is can you affect pH systems in your body enough that you could almost get an anti-catabolic effect? Right? That's very weird because people who are in acidosis, right? They tend to be proteolytic. They tend to be breaking down um, tissues. So the idea would be like, oh, well, what if you did something sim- as simple as pop Tums at every, every meal? You know. Now, the drawback is that could alter protein digestion and things like that potentially. That was my first thought. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe in between meals, I don't know. We never really fleshed it out, just tossing around these ideas because it's a really weird and interesting idea that if you're a little more alkaline, you're a little less catabolic. Um, I don't know. As far as, like, I've never seen data. I'd be curious to see more about, can you upregulate the muscle acidity buffer systems? Like, we know you could upregulate antioxidants like glutathione peroxidase or SOD, you know. So that's one of the reasons people are always saying antioxidants like C and E are controversial because you can naturally upregulate your antioxidant systems. But I've never personally seen anything as, as far as um, naturally upregulating, like carnosine. You know, or something like that. Like when you train intensely to the point of a burn, high rep, you know, do you naturally start to protect yourself a little bit better? Um, Because if you do, that might call some of this into question a little bit more chronically, if that makes any sense. Because then you wouldn't need to bolster these buffering systems by, you know, eating boxes of baking soda. I don't know. So, yeah, yeah, it's, you could go either way. Um, I did find the study, too, that uh, Andy had put out was acute uh, attention of fatigue after sodium bicarbonate supplementation does not manifest into greater training adaptations after 10 weeks of resistance training exercise. Okay. It's in plus one, 2018, May 2nd. Oh, so, so new. Yeah. Yeah, I'll add that to my list. Um yeah, and I know other guys like Hank Krajinov and uh, my buddy Cal Dietz will purposely try to have athletes, you know, very advanced athletes do super high levels of lactate-based work. And then during the recovery, basically put them in like a crouched position. So trying to limit blood flow, trying to keep the acid level as high as 
possible, mm-hmm. hoping that maybe you get a super compensation effect with more, as you mentioned, upregulation of the local buffering yeah. effect because the local concentration is higher. Again, that hasn't been studied, but it's a you know pretty cool idea and extension of what we know about physiology right now. It is, and it's sort of Occam's razor, right, in that it's such a yeah. simple intervention. Um. Again, yeah, I I think you're going to run into a lot of homeostasis just ruining your hopes <laughs> right there. Yeah. Um, yeah people do the lactate trap type thing. It's utterly horrible. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. It is not fun at all. You mentioned lactate type training. Um, Phil, do you ever do high rep stuff with your people or, or do you not? I mean, because that's the only reason I could think you would really – acutely immediately want to do this oh you can get a couple more reps because the burning sensation is less or i'm guessing you don't do a lot of that do you no i mean we do some sets of 10 but (laughs) (laughs) right that's not a lot of yeah no i mean the only thing we get into some of that with is like swings and things like that but that's more conditioning based stuff so um yeah no i mean i don't purposely look to build up lactate and and things like that so right uh, it doesn't really match a lot of the goals of your lifters either. No. Right. Yeah, no. That's what I was thinking, right? I mean, if you're about strength and not, like, muscular endurance, I don't know. Um, yeah, my other athletes, you know, they get, like, my wrestlers and whatnot, they get that stuff done on the mat, you know. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it's not my job. And, and, you know, I mean, what's interesting is it's such a cheap intervention, you know, but I imagine people who use creatine and other things might even be less of a reason to think about baking soda uh it's just so cheap you know that it makes you wonder um you know whether swallowing it some kind of local application whatever um mm. yeah it's kind of a neat idea all right i have one last um mail and we're mid-show already here so i'm going to kind of just hit the highlights this is from chris and i'm sorry chris i'm my speech here is awkward uh, first off, I'm in. Um, whatever you guys are doing with the coffee, I'd like to be part of. Please let me know. Uh, I've been listening to Iron Radio for years now. Uh, I've listened to all the episodes three times over. Every ah. time I'm in a different phase of my training, I get something new out of them. What you guys have done for our community is amazing. Iron Radio, you, Phil, Fortress, Mike, etc., have made an enormous positive impact on my life. It's very odd as we've never met, but I feel like I know you guys and you're my close friends. I have owed you a letter for years. I am a CSCS and because of Iron Radio, a master's level strongman competitor. Uh, Since I started listening to Iron Radio, I've added 70 pounds of mostly muscle and hundreds of pounds to my lifts. I am. I'm 5'9", 250 now. And he sent a picture of his back and he's huge. He's huge. Um, In my mid-40s. I'm about 18% uh, body fat. Um, I also changed my training because of Iron Radio. Listened to Wendler and stuck with 531 for a couple of years religiously. Um, he talked about how much he was eating and everything. Uh, so while not not nearly as strong as Phil or Fortress, I am. Um, I'm at about a 280 press, 405 bench, and a 600 deadlift. That's good. That's that's yeah. good, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, way better than me Um, not sure on squat as I haven't worked on that in a while because of an injury and then he talks about some other um, pretty impressive lifts so um, 
like I said, he sent a picture of himself. And then he went on and he said, I have two suggestions for guests. The first is my strongman coach, Barry Von Perkins. Uh, and then he goes on to make a couple of other ones. Uh, Jay Smith. So I'll look into that, Chris. And thank you for the email. I mean, it, this doesn't generate a, a salary for any of us. So when we hear something about, oh, somebody said oh, they went back to school or they got into competing and one, you know, strong man like you did, something like that, um, that's kind of how we get paid, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, knowing that, you know, it has a positive impact on people in the community. So um, thank you for that email. I mean, that's that's much appreciated. Yeah, that's super nice. Uh, all right. Let's go ahead and uh, go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about injuries and what we personally do about them. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population Uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, we are back. We're going to talk about injuries and what we personally do about them. Uh... Part of the impetus for this was because uh, you know I just had that sort of weird oral surgery and whatnot, but we've all had some pretty catastrophic things. Mike and I were talking the other week about that, like um, 
you know, cringe-worthy injuries and whatnot. But I thought it might be helpful to let people know what we do about them. Partly, I wanted to tap Phil's experience because when we talked about cringe-worthy injuries, <laughs> we never, you know, we didn't have Phil wasn't on that time. I'm like, well, Phil's got us beat. So, yeah. so uh, when you've been hurt, what do you do? I mean, I just want this is a kind of free form, right? Like, how do you stay motivated? Um, do you do cardio? Do you avoid that whole area of the body? Like, what yeah, do you personally uh, do? Generally, when it happens, I have about a 15-minute period where I'm mad. And then, <laughs> and then I go into figuring out, okay, well, no, I just got to move on. Um, and, you know, it depends. I mean, there's been times where you just shift gears totally, and it's like, okay, I, well, I can't do this, what I was aiming for, so let's start you know, recompositioning our body or something like that. You start basically shift your focus onto what you can control instead of what you can't, which is right now it's that injury. So, um, I've just done a real good job of like with my hamstring and whatnot. I just worked everything else, but that, you know, in a way that, you know, kept me moving forward. And I know it's just having the, uh, faith i guess it will that okay if working all this other stuff i will end up further than i was before mm-hmm. than just ignoring it you know some people just get depressed and go sit on the couch yeah like when i've done either bicep or whatnot what happens is okay well i'm doing everything one-armed uh when i did the first one what did i do like the next day i ordered a safety squat bar okay i can squat i don't need to hold on to the bar <laughs> you know? oh yeah yeah so i could keep that going um a lot of deadlifts with just one arm things like that whatever your injury is i just i just avoid that area don't do anything that hurts and find out what i can do you know the first few weeks is probably just that it's just finding out what what can i do and now you can push those things that you can do right um Mm -hmm. so you have to define what 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 you're able to do first and then once you figure those out now you can start setting goals for those those things you can do now let me ask so one of the things that when we talk about cringe a little, I, w- I used to worry me when you'd, you'd get back, like after blowing a biceps or something, mm-hmm. you get back so quickly. I mean, even before, oh, yeah. I know physical therapists are aggressive with this these days, but even before that, can you give people any tips or even if it's not for them, because I know we're treading in dangerous waters here, but yeah, you yourself, how do you differentiate between what's bad pain and good pain? Because when you're rehabbing after a surgery, for example, mm-hmm. Or let's just say something is naturally healing and you didn't have to have a procedure. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be an element of ache or strain, you know, how yeah. that you have to accept, right? How do you draw that line? And I don't know. I mean, you can kind of tell if it's bad pain, like a sharp pain. But, I mean, for me, the number one goal with either bicep, the hip, hamstring, number one, okay, it's range of motion first. So the first thing I did was, okay, I have to work on getting total range of motion back because I know if I'm not in total range of motion, then my chances of getting hurt are going to be greater. Mm -hmm. Like if I can't straighten my arm by myself, then loading that with extra load is a bad idea because that tendon is way too tight. So number one goal was push it hard with as far as uh, just just stretching tendons back out and getting things to, to hit full range of motion again. And then my next step was just doing lots of light, high rep things. Um, and then I would move on. Like, we'll just take bicep, for example. My this, this second one I did. Um, I started with heavier exercise that put me at less strain. 
So, um, or less case of injury, like oh. with deadlift, mm-hmm. I've never hurt myself, my, my de- biceps deadlifting, but I, the underhand, if you use a mixed grip is always the one that takes the most beating yeah. and generally where if people are going to blow their bicep on a deadlift, it's that. So what did I do? I switched to, I just did double overhand as long as I possibly could. Cause I knew I wanted to come back and pull 700 again. So I did the hook grip for as long as I could. And I got up to about 650 before I then had to change. I just couldn't hold on anything, anything over like 655. But then that, that would have been weeks, right? Weeks. Oh, yeah, it was weeks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're talking, you know, you start off in probably 12 weeks you know, mm-hmm. after this mm-hmm. gaining. So there were weeks of gaining back uh, mobility first. So I just did things that were more safe uh, that I could get stronger at. You know, I was able to push my deadlift and, and get stronger. And then finally, okay, well, now it's time to try. <laughs> so um, generally what I'd do then is start off with, you know, let's just start off with two plates. Okay, next week we'll go three plates. A week later, four plates. You know, you just add a little weight at a time and make sure everything's feeling good. Yeah. As so, you sort of and all the, crawl out of the hole, really, you know. Cause yeah, and all the while doing as much as I could for, like, <sighs> rehab and things like that, just making sure it's moving well, make sure there's no aches and pains. Don't mask Try if you're if you're coming back from an injury, try not to mask it too much with like a painkiller. Yeah. Then you might be in pain and you might not know it. So, and it's knowing what your injury is. Like with my hip, you know, the thing that set me free on that was finally going to the doctor and him telling me that, yo, dude, your hip your hip screwed. You need a replacement. You can't hurt it more than it's already hurt. You know, I can't need a double replacement mm-hmm. you know yeah once he told me that he was like just do whatever you can you know he's like you're just going to be in pain so i was like oh, okay that kind of gave me permission to uh i knew i couldn't mess it up any more than it was so i might as well just keep doing what i'm doing and i can just handle pain you know to a point so it's like i couldn't i wasn't going to put myself in any worse spot so so i went ahead and pushed it on the hip needing the hip replacement up to like a 660 squat in, in pain wow but I, you know, yeah but it didn't matter. <laughs> yeah, know? it wasn't right. Like progression, so, right? You don't have to worry about progressive type stuff. Like it's a given yeah, that yeah. it's going to get a little bit worse. And then when it does, you're going to need the repair. So you might as well use well, yeah. it, right? Yeah. And that's how he's like, you might as well just keep getting strong and whatever, you know, deal with it as, as it goes. And then once you're finally ready, come into me and we'll do it. So I just did that. So. And that worked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, it's just. You got to go back to the basics. Like with my hip, it was okay. I need to learn to walk again because I spent like eight years walking wrong because of the hip. Yeah. So just go back to the basics. Okay. Learn your movement patterns again. Cause I would, that was my new default. <laughs> you know, my new default was a weird foot turn limping thing. So I had to go back and, and just slowly, okay, let's get back to normal. Uh, let's try and walk like a normal person. But, uh, and things like that. I mean, just primary movement patterns. Yeah, range yeah. of motion, motor patterns. That, yeah. that sounds very so, like what a physical therapist would do, right? Yeah, and I, that's that. Those are the points of time where I slow things down. Like, I'm if I'm working with an injury, I will do like time under tension work because if you're moving fast, it's oh that hurt. Well, where did it hurt? I don't freaking know. I was moving so fast, I can't yeah. tell you. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So. You kind of slow things down and, and find out where things hurt. And then, you know, recently I've been trying to, because of my hip, I, I brought my stance in really narrow and made it a lot more quad dominant squat. So over the last 
three and a half months, I've been widening my squat. And at first, ooh, my hips were lit up. So it's just moving through that and trying to figure out where where I'm tight, what needs to work out, mm-hmm. and things like that. But yeah, I'd say, I mean, the main things I do with an injury is one of two things. It's just keep moving forward, finding out what I can do. If I can still to move towards my goal, just find out what I can still do and what I can't do and work on those things I can and kind of ignore the things I can't for the time being. Right. If those things don't matter, I can't do them. <laughs> right. So, Or it's just shift gears. You know, if it's that bad, it's like, okay, I can't feasibly move towards that old goal, so I'm going to move towards this goal. I'm going to start dieting, get lean, and, you know, whatever. You know, something that's still progressive, but just maybe in a different direction than you were heading before. Well, I like what you were saying about, like, you didn't automatically just go to, well, to hell with the strength training, I'm just going to do cardio for for 12 weeks. You know, you actually, (laughs) you stuck with progressive strength training. It might be, like I said, crawling back up out of a hole, out of a very tiny weights, you know, but it is progressive. And, but you're right. You also, I mean, you do have that, well, I guess I'll work on leanness for a while, Uh, but you don't have to just... It's not all or nothing. Like, oh, there goes all the strength training, like you said. It yes. could be contralateral limb stuff, you know, like work the opposite side. Ho- hopefully you get some, like, you know, cross, yeah. like, neural education or whatever. Um, some cool stuff there probably. L- one more question before I ask Mike is, and I think we all know the answer to this, but there could be a listener out there who got hurt really badly, catastrophic mm-hmm. sort of from the first time. As you've learned, as you've been injured repeatedly – do you think you get better at responding to it? Like how you uh, – do you learn to fix yourself better with subsequent catastrophic injuries? Oh, yeah. I mean like my my first bicep I did right before Strongman Competition on Atlas Stone, and I had no clue what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was much better the second time. It went much quicker because I already had that background behind me. What to expect. Yeah. Okay, I need to go right to this. You know, and, you know, so I knew right where to go. And even mentally, you just, you learn how to take it better. I mean, I say this weird when people ask me, it's like one of the best things that happened to me was getting ran over at seven years old. I learned to face adversity at a very young age, mm-hmm. you know, because at that point they told me I'd never walk again, this and that. And that's where I learned, oh, screw you, I'm going to do it. You know, yeah. uh, like I got a hip replacement and most people just hang up their stuff. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to squat 700. You know, and I'm going to do it on a fake hip and show you guys what's up because this is what I enjoy doing. Um, but uh, and is it the smartest thing in the world for everybody? Probably not, but it's right for me. You know, I mean, I it's do. Just, you know what though? Quality of life thing. It's. I think it's helpful for people. Like again, with the sense of community, why it's valuable. Like when I tore my triceps, I can be like, well, I didn't get run over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it it kind of gives you perspective. I'm like, well, because. Yeah. Because, you know, you're overwhelmed at first. Like you said, you're pissed off um, yeah. uh, for a day, a couple of days, whatever. And then you just – strong-willed people are going to get over that, you know, f- feeling sorry for themselves or whatever. And yeah, just be you like, can't do that. There's always something worse. What, so what's my first yeah. step? You know, what's the first step of a, of a thousand miles here? I mean, all the things that have happened to me, you know, hamstring, uh, hip, biceps. You know, I got a buddy now that has a, a, a severe speed, C-spine injury from an accident. And it's oh. like, man, nothing, none of mine is – that's nothing. You know, what I've gone through is nothing. You know? Right. Uh, a hip is nothing compared to a cervical spine issue. You know, it's like, that's cake. It's yeah. Like, so there's always something, someone to face something worse. And, you know, it's finding out. I just enjoy this stuff enough that it's worth it to me to, 
to keep going. You know, I tried taking those, I took two years and tried to, you know, talk myself into kind of retiring from doing it and just coaching. And I was, I was not having fun. So it's, there's a quality of life thing, but, uh, I'm going to get back at it. You know, you Phil, know, for what it's means, worth, for what it's worth, you went through that phase while we were doing the podcast, right? That was yeah. in the last 10 oh, yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like, hey, I'm back to me. You know, I, I do a meet twice a year, but I, I, I'm always pushing towards one and I love it, you know, and will I ever be what I was before? Yeah, I don't know. Arguably in certain ways, I'm better. You know, I may never bench as much as I did before because my shoulders just fried from years of abuse. Mm-hmm. But I'm squatting more than I ever did. I mean, I did a pause squat with no wraps with 605 last week. Um, there's no reason I probably won't hit 750 plus. Oh, dude, next there's no doubt. When we started <laughs> so, in, we started January of '09, and yeah. your squat was light years behind your deadlift. You oh know? yeah, yeah. Yes, for sure. And now. Now they're the same, roughly. <laughs> right, yeah. You know? So, I mean, this hip replacement has kind of given me a new way to sh- – I'm not pushing my deadlifts as much anymore because I've done that. You know, yeah. Dude, I pulled like 900 out of the rack. I pulled 780 from the floor, no belt. I just missed 800. It's like that was fun. It's yeah. fun to explore this squat thing that I wasn't able to do before. <laughs> you know? No, right, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Cool. So I'm just going to keep keep rolling, man, and it's – you got you – got, a couple choices you know you can just keep going or give up and a big part of it like you said feel sorry for yourself for a minute and start figuring things out and go forward i mean yep sounds good and especially like you said you can move forward you don't have to just say hell with everything i guess i'll just be a skinny runner (laughs) you know yeah Uh, i mean i can't think of a aside from like being paralyzed you know you there's something you can do yep you know, I mean, I've never been injured to the point where I can't train. There's a whole lot of rest of the body. <laughs> well, you know what? It's to me so. what we do is is actually very similar to what physical therapists do or occupational therapists. In that, we're all applying different stimuli, looking for adaptations. You know, we mm-hmm. tend to go from normal, if you will, average to super normal. They go from injured up to normal, but it's still a, a the, the direction is the same. You're going from a, a lower end to a higher end, trying to build, you know, biochemical or structural adaptations because of the eating and the training, the stimulus and all yeah. that. You know, so. well, I think a big part too is just getting older and more mature. You know, now more than ever, I'm able to just allow myself to do things I enjoy. Yeah, you know, like I'm not going to do that. That hurts, and I don't like it. I don't yep. care if he says I should. You know? Yeah. Like, I finally quit. I love pull-ups, but they kill my shoulder every time I do them. Mm. So it's like, mm. I'm not going to do them anymore. So so there. I know pull-ups <laughs> are amazing. I have all my people do them, but it's like, no, I'm not doing them. Yeah. And if I test it, I can still go out and do, like, 12 to 15, but it's like, then I pay for it for a month. Oh, right. It's not worth it. Yeah. You know? Right. So I just find other things. And it's like, I really like lifting heavy things. So I'm going to just keep doing that, you know? Yeah. So, and you know, it's funny when you talk about getting older too, uh, because I've had a couple of, you know, surgeries, I guess that's considered reasonably catastrophic when you tear something off uh, the bone and whatnot. But yeah, you do gain, you gain perspective, you know, um, as far as nutrition stuff goes, I will purposely in, in the early stages, 
even right now with what I'm doing, I'll take a little extra vitamin C. I'll take a little bit of um, you know glucosamine chondroitin kind of thing. I drink it down with some bone broth. I kind of do that because my joints are bad anyway. But I'll purposely try to support soft tissue repair. Make sure you eat uh, plenty. Like you don't want to stop eating because you don't want to get mm-hmm. fat because you're not moving. It's like no, yeah. you eat so you can repair. I mean, you know, simple rule in dietetics is more protein and calories when you want to mm-hmm. repair from an, you know, an injury like that. But, yes. But, um, Mike, let me ask you then, because you had some serious injuries too. You were talking about one of them recently. Um, what's your approach with yourself? I mean, pain tolerance, motivation, nutrition, what comes to mind? Yeah, similar to Phil. I mean, I'm probably a complete nut job that I told my wife, I have this little list of stuff that if anything happens, here's who you contact contact from. If I end up in a coma, here's the functional neurologist I want or a guy who can get in touch with them, and I know them. So I can probably get access to that, or if I screw up my leg, I know a buddy of mine is an orthopedic, so I'm going to go talk to him or a physical therapist or whatever. So I think thinking about those things of who's in your referral network just for yourself, and obviously you can use those people for clients then too, um, saves you a lot of time, especially if you know them already. When I busted my ankle years ago, I went to an orthopedic, and I didn't trust that guy at all. So I called a buddy of mine I was on ski patrol with at the time, and I said, yeah, I called your office, Luke. I can't, you know, get in for like three weeks. I screwed up my ankle. I've got, you know, 11 weeks until I leave on a windsurfing trip. And he's like, um, you coming in tomorrow at 11? I'm like, I'll be there. He's like, all right, cool. <laughs> yeah. So knowing someone like that, you know, is helpful. Mm-hmm. So once you get it professionally evaluated, you know exactly what you did. My next thought, very similar to Phil, is, okay, what can I do now? It's super easy to fall into the trap of, oh, my God, I busted my ankle. I can't squat now. I can't deadlift. I can't drive a car because it's my right ankle, blah, blah, blah. So figuring out what you can do. I'm like, well, I can do some upper body stuff. You know, I can get a cab or get a buddy of mine to drive me to the gym, walk around on crutches, put myself in various machines. Mm-hmm. You know, what can you do safely to, to do something to improve? Well, I can still work on my left leg. Maybe I can do some... You know, single leg stuff in a very controlled manner. And then also from a range of motion standpoint, similar to what Phil said, what range of motion can I get without pain? Because pretty much all therapists, and again, you'd have to ask them, be like, hey, can I do movement that's not painful? The vast majority of the time they're going to say, yeah, that's fine. But even like with my foot, I've got all wrapped up in a cast and I've got two toes sticking out and it's the size of a cantaloupe. I'm like, can I move my big toe like two millimeters up and down? <laughs> you know, just stuff like that to try to get any range of motion back that's mm-hmm. painful. Once you start getting your range of motion back, I always tell people, go back to your you know, physician or PT or whatever. And the two things I have them tell them is, before the surgery, um, I want to do the thing that injured me again. Unless they yeah. tell you, nope, it's, your life is dependent upon it. Don't ever do that again. Because I want them to understand that I don't want to be 85%. I don't want to be 90%. I'm going to get back to 100%. Yeah. Sometimes that may change. Like with a bicep, that'll change the procedure that they're actually going to do. Oh, yeah. And if you don't mm-hmm. emphasize that that's where you're headed, 
a lot of times it's not they're bad people. They're just like, yeah, you know, most people, 85, 90%, that's going to be fine. Right. So making sure that that's very explicit up front. And sometimes if they say, no, you'll never do that again, I'm going to go ask somebody else. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and it may take a few people, you know. Um, so making sure that you get that approval, making sure you're going in the right direction. And then I ask them, okay, so I can't, let's say, with the ankle, I can't do ankle motions. Can I do anything else that's not painful? Most of the time they'll be like, yes. Okay, cool. So you're getting approval for the things that you, you can do. Because it's super easy, and I totally get why, you know, orthopods and stuff do this. They just don't want you to damage anything else, especially after they just fixed it. And I yes. I totally understand that, because their reputation depends upon right on. physical outcome. Yep. So they're very reluctant to tell you anything else to do, because they don't want you to screw up their work, which I get. Mm-hmm. But if you go in and say, okay, um, I want to do this, this, or that, is that okay? Yeah, maybe. You'll be like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do some stuff. Um, I can <laughs> without pain. Is that cool? They're probably like, yeah, that's okay. You know? Yeah. Um, and then from there is just, you know, progression as best you can. Um, on the nutrition side, you know, I do a lot of stuff. Probably now I do more like collagen, uh, bone broth, especially before any type of loading based on some Keith Barr stuff. Maybe antioxidants, I don't know, all the research on that's pretty split. Yeah, just eat yeah. more vegetables, do things like that. Um, I think that can help. With, with clients and with myself, we talked about body comp. I'll look and say, okay, here's kind of your two options. If you want to potentially prolong your healing a little bit, again, we don't know how long, yeah, we can do some body comp you know, type goals. But because we're providing less calories and less substrate and less raw material, it may take you a little bit longer to heal. Now, again, this is theoretical. Or in my case with the ankle, I had a trip coming up. I'm like, I don't care if I gain 15 pounds because I can lose that later. I have this trip that I paid money for. I'm going to be windsurfing whether I have to duct tape my ankle to the board or not. Mm-hmm. So I'll take gaining 5 or 10 pounds even if that pushes up my recovery by a couple weeks. Yeah, to heal, um, heal quickly. Yeah, To heal quicker, yeah. So I, because what I see with a lot of athletes is they'll want to do both. They'll be like, oh, dude, I got this huge gain that's coming up in four months. My doc says I may be ready. I may not. Oh, man, I don't want to get fat because I'm not doing as much exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would really recommend you pick one or the other. Which one is more important to you? Because otherwise you're you know, trying to ride two horses with one ass, and that usually never ends well. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. No, I mean, I I would just re-hit up the – if there's anybody to be honest with, it's your orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, tell them what you plan on doing after. Like I had to go through numerous surgeons to get my hip – the right hip replacement. Yeah. Because they wanted to put in technology that I wasn't accepting. But, you know, Phil, it, that can be hard. Like they yeah. – the whole process almost subjugates <laughs> the patient sometimes from waiting forever to get in to they just tell you oh, something. Yeah. They expect you to swallow it. You know, yeah. like I'm telling you, this retainer I've got right now, it's unacceptable. It hurts. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. I I speak for a living. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, I've, so I've got to have that courage like you did to go and say, no, I, I, yeah. that's unacceptable. This is my body. You're fired, essentially. Give me something different. You know. <laughs> Give me something different or you're fired. Yep. Yes. Yeah. So. And that can, but. yes, self-advocate for sure. Yeah. So the last one I had is that I'll have clients... 
verbalize and write down, okay, when do you consider yourself 100% healed with whatever happened, right? So let's say they blow their bicep doing a 405 mixed grip deadlift, right? I would say, well, if you can do a 405 mixed grip deadlift again with zero pain and it's relatively easy, I'd say that's probably a pretty good marker that you're healed because I want them to think what does the end look like so they know what direction they're going. And then from the mental side, them to let go of that injury. Like when I blew both my hip flexors and groin out, I was like, okay, what am I going to say is that I'm healed again? Okay, I can deadlift, I can do everything without pain, and I can go wakeboard again, have the board get blown off my feet and not have any pain. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, you know, it was seven months after it happened, took a horrible bad crash, wakeboarding, hit the wake, board gets yanked up behind me, pops off my feet. I'm like, oh man, that sucked. I get the board and I'm like, oh, hip flexors are fine. Nope, oh, they're healed. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, just so. one last thing quickly because we got to go. When I tore my triceps, I think it was a full year before I was doing sure. medium weight hit heads again, you know, lying mm-hmm. triceps extensions, skull crushers. I felt healed way before that, but to, mm-hmm. to let go psychologically and do and to train that movement like I used to, I think it was about a year. I'm almost ashamed yeah. to admit that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I believe that. I, you know, I've seen some cases where it's way longer than that, and it's more the mental aspect of that trauma, right? Because your brain goes, hey, remember the last time we did this thing, we got injured? Sure as hell, they want to go back there again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. right on. All right, guys. All yeah. right, good cool. stuff. Have a good one. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. uh, Knee sleeves, wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, 
please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.